1: Hey everybody, it's Pete and Connor again. Welcome to Podside Picnic, and we have a special guest today, Isaac Butler. I'm going to cheat and read his Slate bio. Um, He had a podcast that's still out there and available called "Lend Me Your Ears" uh, off of Slate. Uh, He co-wrote "The Ascent of Angels in America" and is working on a book. The
2: book, the, the book, sorry, the book is actually called "The World Only Spins Forward." The ascent of angels in America.
1: Oh yeah, I guess Angels of America was that television program. Wasn't was the yeah? Well, it was
2: originally a play, but yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, okay. the book the book is actually called The World Only Spins Forward. Okay. That's just the subtitle.
1: And and these are all great things, but they aren't specifically why we called you out today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we asked you on today because of the wonderful article about John Ford that you had in Slate. Welcome, Isaac. Oh, thank you
2: so much. It's it's wonderful to be here.
1: So um, I guess. Uh, I, I want to say to our, our listeners right now that if you have not already, you should probably go Google Isaac Butler, John Ford and go read that article right now, because it's probably going to make this episode a lot more fun for you.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's a quick read. It's fun. It's got plot twists. It's, uh, it, you know,
0: it does. And I want to jump in here and say, really, Isaac, thanks for doing that. Uh, one of my favorite articles this year. Oh, thank Hand you so down. much. Yeah, it's a really great read and I think that kind of gets as as you said it has plot twists, which I think is a really interesting. It's one of those wonderful long-form pieces of journalism uh, where you get to we get to unspool kind of uh your meta narrative of creating it, what that actually did in the world and I mean uh to give a little bit of spoilers here, basically, I mean I, the way I would put it is that you set out to do this feature on this beloved and prolific Uh, science fiction and fantasy writer, John M. Ford. And not only did you manage to do a really interesting profile of him, um, you also, well, I mean- I'll, I'll let you say it. Like you, you got some stuff enacted <laughs> in the world by doing this piece. Am I right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, when I started out doing this, I had read one novel of, I'm going to call him Mike Ford because everyone called him Mike, even though his real first name was John and his middle name was Milo. I don't know where the Mike came from, but anyway, um, when I started out to write this piece, um, uh, about Mike Ford, I had read one of his novels, his most sort of famous and beloved novel, this, this fantasy novel called the dragon waiting, which I hope we'll get some, some opportunity to talk about in a bit. And, um, I had heard this rumor about him and his work and, and that it was, um, kind of being kept out of print by his family who didn't like him was essentially what I had heard, uh, which I just thought was totally bizarre, you know, um, that, uh, there, there was a, a hunger for his work to be reprinted, even though he never had any sort of major acclaim or success in his life. His best-selling novel, uh, which was briefly a New York Times bestseller, uh, is a novel he wrote. Um, for Star Trek, um, uh, uh, which uh, is this very silly, delightful book called How Much for Just the Planet. But, you know, most people, if they knew him, they actually knew him from his RPG handbooks that he had written and stuff like that. So it's just so weird that there was this writer who didn't get the success he deserved in his life and then also there was a hunger to put his work back in print posthumously, but there was something going on that kept it from happening. And so I set out to write that. And I actually have the original email from, uh, Dan coice my editor at slate where I was like, Hey, there's this weird thing, you know, what if I looked into it? And he said, sure, you know, get me 1500 words, you know, in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, 18 months later, (laughs) you know, uh, the article came out, but one of the strange things that happened as a result was I tracked down his family, which was not the easiest thing to do in the universe because for, for a number of reasons I can get into, um, and it turned out that they actually, in fact, wanted his work back in print, um, and were very, um, angered that there was this story going around the internet that they didn't but they sort of didn't know how to make that happen. And so I um, uh, uh, connected them with um, Mike's old editors and friends at Tor, and they entered into very long negotiations. And at the end of that, the, the end result is that Mike's work is actually coming back into print. And The Dragon Waiting will be the first book coming back into print. That's in September of 2020. It's part of this new... Um, backlist-oriented line that Tor is rolling out called Tor Essentials, which will start at the beginning of next year with um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Three Californias and uh, Maureen McHugh's China Mountain Zhang. Uh, and then eventually they'll get her, you know, so Mike Ford's Dragon Waiting will be reissued as part of that in September. So the So the wild thing is, I just set out to find out, like, what happened to this guy, and I just discovered this kind of bottomless story, um, both about him. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff about him that I couldn't get into in the article for space reasons. And then also wound up resolving this over a decade long conflict so that his work could get back in print, which was just very strange. It was, I mean, it wasn't at all. I'm very glad it happened, but it certainly was not what I expected to happen when I started out writing it.
1: Okay. I have a, I have a, a dumb question and a more intelligent question and they're linked here. So great let let's dismiss the dumb question as quickly as possible. Uh, <laughs> both of you have journalistic experience you you've written columns you're 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 in this life what i've always been taught is that when you when you write an article, you're supposed to not be a part of the story. And obviously I don't want that to happen here because like preserving Mike Ford's legacy is an incredibly cool thing, man. I wanna I wanna send you a tiara, it's so damn cool. <laughs> but like, I, I mean what during this process, did it ever feel like you were becoming a part of the story? And did you
2: question that? Oh, I absolutely question that. That's not a dumb question at all, actually. You know, I, um, I'm i both a journalist and, you know, a cultural critic. And one of the things that I've been trying to do in my own writing over the past couple years is remove the first per- person pronoun whenever possible, um, particularly in my criticism, because just like I felt like it was making my writing less interesting in some ways. And I also just think, like, I have a big person. And I'm confident that my personality is big enough. I don't have to actually be in everything I write, you know? <laughs> um, and, but then, uh, uh, and so the moment when I wrote that email connecting tour, uh, you know, sending the, the family's info to, to the folks at tour, I actually had this like really sinking in the pit of my stomach Um, oh crap, now there's no way to write this story without me being a character in it feeling. Um, And one of the real craft challenges of writing it was how much I was going to be in it Um, because it was just inescapable, you know? And so uh, the very initial draft did not start with my friend Helen giving me the book. It started with Tor reprinting the books or something like that. and. Dan was like, you know, you, you have to start with you getting this book for, you know, just to give one example. Um, but then in the next draft I did, there was like a lot of stuff about what it, the process that it took to track the family down. And Dan there was like, actually, that's not that that's interesting for you, but you know, save the, we have limited space, save it and focus on Mike. Um, so, you know, that was a, that was a real struggle for me to tell you the truth. I did not want to be in it, uh, at all. <laughs> but in this particular case, like it, it just wound up being, um, part of the story, you know? Um, and then the, the, as you say, the good news is, is that if I wasn't a character in this story, you know, there's some things that would not have happened. Um, uh, so it wound up being for the best, but, uh, but I was worried in some way that being in it would on just a style level, make the piece less good.
0: Yeah. I, I have a, cause I have a fanboy question. Like how, how much fun did you have interviewing people like Neil Gaiman? Come on, man.
2: <laughs> uh, Neil, I had a wonderful time interviewing Neil. I've met him a few times. I worked on a um, adaptation of Coraline, a stage adaptation of Coraline. And so oh, nice. I, uh, uh, as a, with the uh, music by Stephen Merritt of the magnetic fields actually. So I knew him a little bit through that and um, not that he had remembered me, but I'm just saying, you know, so at least I had talked to him a couple of times, um, so that I wasn't, uh, too overwhelmed by the Neil Gaiman experience, you know, um, because he is a very charismatic guy and I am a big fan of his work. And, um, so, uh, talking with him was really great. And, uh, we talked for a very long time. Um, because he was just very excited to get an opportunity to talk about um, this extremely close friend of his who is you know, one of the first readers of his work. He said that no one gave him better notes than, than Mike did. Uh, and then in the midst of that, he said, oh, I have all these delightful emails from him that I'll send to you, one of which is quoted in the piece, but he actually sent me like a lot of their correspondence. Um, and so I was just very moved by how generous he was with me about, about that. Um, and, um, but it wasn't, you know, we were also talking about, uh, a friend who he was still grieving. And actually everyone I talked to was still grieving Mike on some level in part because his work wasn't able to be in print. Right. And so, um, Uh, uh, it wasn't like the most fun conversation I think he's ever had in his life, (laughs) but uh, but it was really great to talk to him and to talk to him in a very specific way and to talk to Joe Walton, who's also an incredible writer um, in a very specific way about this person who they were both personally and artistically such a fan of.
1: I, you know, that's one, that's the other thing about this. This was sort of my second question. I don't understand. Like I, I, in your position, I don't know if I'd ever got to the actual article because like you were working with Neil Gaiman, you were working with Joe Walton, you were working with, oh gosh, who else? Jack Womack. I mean, like it seems to me like I would end up writing like three or four separate articles about the journey because <laughs> all of those conversations
2: had to be amazing. Um, They were. They were absolutely amazing. Um, You know, sitting in Patrick and Teresa Nielsen Hayden's apartment for a couple of hours and talking about not just Mike, but the evolution of science fiction in the 80s and 90s and early aughts from two people who were right at the heart of it. Um, was really incredible. You know, I, I originally was going to do this whole thing about kind of sci-fi convention culture in the 90s and how Mike fit into it. There obviously was not room in the article for that. But, you know, learning about that was, was really incredible. Um, I will say that one thing that prepared me well for it was the book that Dan and I did, The World Only Spins Forward, because there's like 250-some-odd interviews in that um, with uh, people of all levels of fame. You know, Dan got to talk to Meryl Streep for that book. <laughs> um, so, wow. you know, um, uh, I'm. It, it really was a throw, doing that book really threw me off the d- deep end into what it's like to just interview a lot of fascinating people and then try to cut to the heart of these long career spanning talks you've had for, you know, the four quotes you can use. I mean, I didn't even get to use any of my interview that I did with Jack Womack for the piece. And that was the first interview I did was with him.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, so, like, you, you've alluded to something here that I think is really interesting at a technical level, which is it's clear that this piece could have been pretty good if it had run for, like, several thousand more words. Um, <laughs> yeah. And as someone who's written a little bit in that longer form, uh <laughs> I maybe mean, I've written a few longer nonfiction pieces. I'm wondering, like, uh I mean you know, do you, <laughs> uh, do you mourn the loss of some of that narrative? Like, is, is this narrative still floating around in your head at this point? Cause it's such a fascinating story.
2: Um, yeah, yes, yes. I think, you know, every writer who has a big story that has to be fit into a small word count, um, both, enjoys that challenge and um mourns all the stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor. I would say that, you know, should I ever publish an essay collection, uh there will probably be a longer version of this story in there that includes all the other, you know, some of the other stuff that I figured out. At the same time, you know, um and again, I think a lot of credit for this goes to Dan who edited it. Um, the the that it is as focused, you know, um, a machine as it is, I think, is one of the reasons why it, it resonated as widely as it did and was as popular as it was. That said, like, there's all sorts of stuff I would love to, to go into. You know, um, I didn't get to go into Ask Dr. Mike, the very strange improvised live show that... Ford used to do, or I would have our, loved
1: to have heard a description of that.
2: Well, what am I saying? Can we hear a description? Sure. Of that? So, so part of the issue there is that it turns out as far as I know that no one ever recorded ask Dr. Mike. Oh gosh. Um, Come and so on. and I, I, I spent, I should say, you know, a good long time trying to find out if anyone had recorded ask Dr. Mike. And, um, as far as I know, no one had, and there was a guy at those at some of the conventions that he did ask. Uh, ask Dr. Mike at, who was a pretty you know compulsive recorder of things, and just happened to not catch that stuff. Um, <laughs> so, Ask Dr. Mike was a live show that Mike Ford would do at conventions. It was uh, Elise Matheson, his partner, gave him the idea, and it was basically Mike in a. um lab coat with a dry erase board, um, riffing at uh, great improvised, you know, these great improvised flights of fancy based on audience questions. So I asked um, a couple people which ones they remembered because we couldn't find recordings of it. And so an example of one would be, you know, oh, how do airplanes stay aloft? An audience member would shout out <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Mike Ford would say, Oh, you know, that's a really fascinating question. He would do this sort of he would draw a diagram or whatever, but the, the ultimate answer would be that the flotation devices under your seat allow the airplane to float on the air, you know, it's like just stuff like that. Right. Or, um, how do, if Teflon coating is non-stick? how do you get it to stick to the pan itself? Uh, and Mike would do a sort of long riff about how well fried eggs, as we know, will stick to anything. So actually between the pan and the Teflon coating is this thin layer of fried eggs. Um, but he would also launch into these long extemporaneous, um, Monologues that were sort of just like improv stand-up comedy. Um, you know, Teresa Nielsen Hayden told me this one that she didn't remember the details of exactly, but you know, he was asked to weigh in on the election, and he went into this sort of long speech about Calvinist predestination and how it fit into electoral politics. And she said every Protestant in the room was like crying they were laughing so hard because, you know, as you can tell from what bits of his writing are floating out on the internet, his mind was just incredibly associative and very fast. And he could knit these things together in this really brilliant way. Um, but yes, one of the great sadnesses of reporting the piece is that I could not find anyone who had a recording of Ask Dr. Mike.
0: That And that's, so what's one thing that's striking about me is that uh, as people will learn if they read your article, he died in 2006 yeah. at the age of 49. And that's a sad story because a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was chronically ill and dealing with our awful American healthcare system. Yes. Um, and that therefore always chronically broke as well and so on. And I mean that's a whole thing. I, I what I'm interested about is like you said no one recorded it. It's like he died in 2006. He dies right on the verge of the smartphone era and the, yes. on the edge of internet ubiquity and you get the sense that if he'd stayed alive a little bit longer this guy would have broken wide it would have broken internet culture wide open and his life and his legacy would have been a lot different. Is that a fair a fair guess?
2: I mean, I think yes. I also think the extent to which that legacy was kept alive so that people could find it was also through the internet. You know, he um was a, a very popular blog participant in the era when, you know, I had a blog. I mean I didn't know him through that world, but like I, you know, in the era when everyone had blogs, the the internet web 2.0, remember web 2.0 with Google <laughs> Reader and whatnot? So, you know, the the early aughts um, he was really beloved by the community of people who were readers and writers on making light, Teresa Nielsen Hayden and eventually Patrick Nielsen Hayden's blog. Um, And so, you know, if you look in the lefty political blogosphere around the dates when he died, there's a lot of mourning him posts, you know, um, uh, uh, up around there. Uh, And a lot of his work, um, his poems specifically were still out there because they were just posted as blog comments, you know? Um, His most famous poem, which is this poem called Against Entropy, which is a a, a sonnet um, about entropy and wanting to resist that, which you have to imagine came from a place of being death haunted because of his health. Um, He just posted as as a blog comment on Making Light. You know, someone said... Uh, you know, as a joke, like I can't knit these three ideas together into a poem, but maybe someone can. And the first comment is just him with that poem. And it went on to be one (laughs) of the most famous things he ever wrote. Um, So, uh, you know, there is a way in which the internet world preserved him, but also had he lived a few years longer, he probably would have broken through for all sorts of reasons, including hopefully he would have finished Aspects, his great, you know, final, novel, which he died having written about 140,000 words of it. It probably would have been eventually around 175, 200,000 words, maybe. Um, I've gotten different estimates as to its length from various people I've talked to. Um, and he'd been working on it since the nineties. So, you know, had that come out, uh, finally, this writer's writer, the best writer you've never heard of finishes his great masterpiece. You know, I think that would have been a big story because the other thing is it would have come out after um, Jonathan Lethem and Michael Chabin and a bunch of other people had kind of kicked door uh, open that door that was separating, you know, lit fic and genre fic. Right. You know, Margaret Atwood, Ursula Le Guin, all these people had kind of broken through at that point. It was easier. I, I think it would have been easier to 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 find a crossover audience at that time.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point, Um, because like <laughs> what I was going to say, is, it seems like this guy really I mean, he had he had the level of aspirations uh, of what we would you know, usually call a literary writer and Pete and I talk all the time about how these are just sort of cynical marketing categories. And I
2: agree they are cynical marketing categories. Uh, uh, I think that he is literary in the true sense of the term, which is to say, pays a lot of extremely careful attention to word choice, structure, character development, you know, he's literary in that sense. um, But he did not care about literary success. He was very open about that, that, you know, he had been well-reviewed by the times and he was like, you know, that's nice, but I don't, I don't care about being taken seriously by the literary establishment.
1: So, um, the, if we could jump around, uh, going back to Joe Walton, um, could there was, there was a discussion you were interesting in having based upon what she said with related to genre fic and RPGs. Could we go
2: into that? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was a really fascinating one. This is a cutting room floor moment or a deleted scene. Right. So this is our, our criterion collection edition of the article, I guess. But the uh, <laughs> um, the 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 um, Joe Walton, who used to write for role playing games. Right. And, and is a wonderful, wonderful science fiction writer um, and was a very good friend of Mike's. I asked her. Where do you see Mike's influence on the field? You know, he was clearly influential. What was his influence? And she said, well, some of it's hard to quantify because it's just simply that he was such a precise writer that you wanted to up your game after you read him." And then she, but then she also said, you know, but there's a weird way in which his RPG writing is very influential as well. And then she said this fascinating thing, which is, you know, when you're writing genre fiction, um, you need rules. You need um, world building stuff. You need the mechanisms by which your narrative operates, and Mike Ford was extremely good at distilling that. Um, I, you know, Pete, I sent you that, that poem cycle he wrote, sci-fi cliches, right? Which is wonderful, by the way. Yeah, which is amazing, and you can see in that in that cycle how he has um, distilled the essence of a particular genre and then is able to both make fun of it and find what's moving about it. You know, he just was really good at that stuff. So he has this great, you can go find it and read it right now, this um, handbook he did for GURPS. Um, Pete, do you want to explain what GURPS was, is, do you, um, GURPS stands for
1: generic universal role-playing system. The basic idea is you wanted to build a set of rules where you could have a bunch of barbarians clear a dungeon with it, or you could turn around and have a bunch of space merchants. The idea is to make a set of rules as generally useful as possible. So you could do what you want.
2: Yeah. And so he did, a, he did lots of writing for GURPS, but his most famous one is GURPS Time Travel. Um, and the time travel one, he one of the things he does in it is he's like, hey, game masters, here's how time travel narratives work. Here are the different subgenres of time travel narratives. Here is how to construct a time travel story. And so what Joe was saying was, if you, um, you know, just need some rules for your time travel story, Read you read Mike Ford's time travel book and there's the rules. It's a guide to writing time travel fiction. And similarly, she was mentioning that, you know, she had written this piece for Tor.com, um, which I can't remember the title of, but I'll, I'll send it to you and you can post it, uh, you know, on the Discord or something. Please. Um, uh, uh, about, you know, why does faster than light travel essentially work the same way across writers? You know, and her theory, which I think is smart, is that it's because of Traveler. It's the mechanics of the role-playing game Traveler, which is that when you want to go faster than light, you know, you pop out of your system that you're in, and then you pop into another system, and then you move at sub-light speed within that system, and essentially you're then in Horatio Hornblower, right? You're, Mm -hmm. you're essentially doing nautical travel once you're in the system. And then the other way to do it is Star Trek, where you are traveling at a warp speed, and then you slow down, but either way, you know, those rule sets exist in role-playing games and you as a genre fic writer can just go and get them.
1: One of the weird side effects of this is that I now want to play Traveler again.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you can figure out how to get the zero G combat system and Traveler to work in a way that is pleasurable, uh, I tip my hat to you.
1: Fair. Yeah. It's like at that point, I, I remember a stack of charts and everybody screaming.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. You need, like, a. Com- you really need, like, a computer running your back end for, for Traveler.
0: So, oh, go ahead, Connor. Oh, no, go ahead, Pete, please.
1: Oh, well, I was just, uh, er- earlier we were talking about how the existence of, of online communities and that sort of fan base was one of the things that uh, made this article possible, that kept things going, that kept the discussion alive. But the other thing I think about is your friend handing you a book and asking you to read it, which is a really pre-internet behavior in some ways. Because I I hate it, but most of my books are, are on uh on Kindle or Kobo right. or like so like do you do you think like was he just in the sweet spot where where it was possible for him to spread past his death?
2: Or I mean have you thought about this? Because it's puzzling me. Yeah totally. I mean I think there's a chance that like have Mike Ford been writing in the 60s or whatever, you know, he, he might actually just be lost, right? Um, uh, he was in a very particular sweet spot to find a posthumous readership. I don't know that he was in the sweet spot to find a readership while he was alive. Um, in part because of that crossover stuff that we were talking about, in part because of, you know, how much money you could spend on an advance or on marketing a book at that time. You know, um, I get the sense that Tor is, you know, a much more formidable publisher now than they, than they were then, you know, in terms of their, their resources. But also, you know, there were, there's an example I give in my article of a manufacturing problem that happened to hurt his career, which is that, you know, when his book, um, the scholars of night came out a uh, tour had just been acquired by St. Martin's and their manufacturing teams really didn't know how to talk to each other yet necessarily. And so that book was printed with a blank back cover. You know, like it, it, like there's just no information on it. If you, if you saw the hardcover in the bookstore that would lead you to want to buy it, you know, so, so, uh, so, but I do think he was unique. He was well-placed to find this kind of posthumous readership and for people to keep the, the, the light of his work going. But you are right. I, I think, and I say this as a former bookstore employee, you know, there is nothing that beats the hand sell. There is nothing that beats a person you trust placing a book in your hand and saying, I think you specifically, you will love it. And now I'm going to describe it to you in a way that is tailor-made for you so that you will want to read it. And, um, Patrick Nielsen Hayden told me this very funny story of an exam, a recent example of that, where he found, uh, there's a little free library nearby where he lives. And he saw that there was a copy of, um, Mike Ford's brilliant star Trek novel, the final reflection um, there, and I should say to your listeners, if you have any affinity for Star Trek at all, um, you can buy the final reflection right now for your ebook device. And I highly recommend you do. Um, it's a wonderful book about, um, diplomacy between the Klingons and the Federation set about 50 years before the original series. And, um, you know, uh, Patrick found this copy of the book and it was missing its front cover. Um, and uh, no one was buying it. And so he took it home and he made a cover for it on his computer which included a testimonial from him as the editor-in-chief of Tor as to why this was an important book and you should <laughs> read it. And then I think he either laminated it or covered it in tape, one or the other, attached it to the book and put it back in the little free library. And it was gone by the end of the day. You know, so so it takes both like the kinds of touches, I think, to keep the, the, the light of his work alive.
0: Wow. <laughs> so That's this helpful. is, I mean, what's, it, what's fascinating to me, as someone who knows a little bit about the publishing industry, like, the fact that Tor, as you said, now the most formidable publisher of science fiction and fantasy, bar none, uh, they, people at the heart of Tor, who ran it, run it, uh, loved his work and couldn't do anything about it because his agent had dropped off the face of the earth, Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, so that's the, that's the sort of biggest mystery at the heart of this story is how exactly did it become the story that his family wanted his work out of print and how did that, that come to not be accurate? And then what really happened there? So for those of you who haven't read the article, just really quickly, I have been told that uh, shortly after his death, his family from whom he was estranged, um, uh, you know, inherited his work because he didn't have a will and, um, that they had kind of suppressed it. And at the time when I started reporting the article, like it said that on his Wikipedia page, you know, like this wasn't a a secret. Um, and lots of people had said it on their websites and many people I talked to repeated it to me. And when I finally found the family, um, they were very angry when I uh, put to them that question. And they said that, you know, they felt they had been defamed, essentially, and that they had always wanted his work back in print and that they wrote his agent of several times and that she had never written back. And they just assumed that there was no interest in his work, and so they gave up on it. Um, and when I circled back with the people who had known Mike and his agent, I, it turned out that it was, there was a really significant chance that that was true, which just seemed very improbable to me. But, um, because she had had a lot of personal problems around the time of Mike's death and she had kind of just disappeared. Um, and so I had tried calling her a bunch of times once I tracked down a phone number attached to her name, um. In the area where she lived, right? I called that number a bunch of times. And then finally, um, I did not put this in the article, but you know, like 48 hours before the article was supposed to go to print, I was like, I have to try one more time. And so I called her and I started leaving an answering machine message and she actually picked up. And she said, "Uh, I'm sorry, I know you were trying to reach me earlier. I I, I just, you know, I had a lot going on. And then she said this thing where she's like, also, I feel like for the first time, I'm ready to talk about this stuff. And so we had a long conversation, none of which made it into the article. You know, she had had a difficult um 12 years, 15, I mean, her, de- the difficulty start before Mike's death. She had taken care of two family members through long illnesses. Uh, and she had been involved in this incredibly ugly legal dispute with a motorcycle racing ring uh, uh, facility that what? had uh, opened next door to her property. I just want to say there is no single detail in my story, in the article that is not actually like, incredibly extra and complicated and weird the more you dig into it. And that had been like a, a, a decade long or whatever um, dispute with getting, trying to get rid of this motorcycle racetrack, which she eventually did get rid of. But, you know, um, she told me that it was extremely ugly. There was vandalism of her home, you know, it's like just lots of terrible stuff. Um, and it had been all consuming. And so, but she did say, I never received those letters. So, who, who knows maybe they sent those letters to her office and she just wasn't at her office anymore because she was essentially in her house upstate all the time. Cause she was worried if she left it, they, the racetrack would do something to it, you know? Um, uh, so, I, so there is at the heart of it, this question, which is, you know, uh, what was the central misunderstanding that led to this work being out of print? But the good news is that, you know, the people involved were able to the family and the editors at tour were able to set aside whatever their grudges and differences were and figure out a way to move forward and resolve this um, to everyone, including the fields benefit. And that's the part of the story that I found really moving was that they were able to do that, that they were able to see past that they had a common interest and they were able to work together to make that common interest happen.
0: Yeah, it really is uh, you know there aren't too many heavily investigated uh, long form pieces of journalism in 2019 that have such a heartwarming ending. So thank you for that, Isaac.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean you know, and it's, I, I will say a full credit uh, should also go to Beth Meacham, who's an editor at Tor, who negotiated the deal. Um, and I uh, um, and I don't know a lot of details of that process to be completely honest, um, but uh, you know I'm. She did incredible work, you know, bringing this deal, bringing this deal home.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I am super excited at this point. Like I've heard so much about this guy, mostly through your article and, and through this right. interview, like I am extremely pumped to see his work. And I'm sure when it comes out, we're all going to be asking how, how <laughs> did this get lost? And uh, thanks to your article, we know, but uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and I'm looking forward to seeing what people's responses are. I, I think you'll, I think you'll dig the dragon waiting. It's really fascinating, um, which is, you know, his sort of consensus masterpiece. Uh, it won. It beat George R. R. Martin for the World Fantasy Award the year it came out. Uh, it, um, and it is this retelling of the Wars of the Roses in an alternate history Europe where Christianity never became the dominant religion. Oh, wow. And, and where the Byzantine Empire never fell. Um, and the, um and so there's it's sort of indescribable even though it's only 300 pages long um but you know there's wizards there's vampires there's magic there's intrigue the the medicis are in it richard III is in it Owen glendower is in it you know it's a it's a really really incredible novel and um really also equally amazing is there's an essay at the end of the book where mike ford lays out the world building that's undergirding the novel which is incredibly Elaborate. But unlike a lot of books and TV shows these days, you know, he worked all of that stuff out so that the narrative could function properly, but he didn't make the narrative about that world building. You know? Right. It's it's not on display. There's he's not explaining to you. He never says to you, oh, by the way, this is an alternate history where Christianity is not the blah, 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 blah. It's just there's um, the Christians. There's another name they have for them that escapes me right now, like the 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 Christers or something. You know, there's some derogatory name for, oh, these people who worship this weird guy who lived in Jerusalem. And it's just through that sort of offhanded reference that you realize like, oh, Christianity is not it's a minority religion. It's not a majority religion. And so, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, He did another novel called Growing Up Weightless, which takes place on the moon. And there's an essay in one of his collections where he talks about working out how the public transit system works on the moon, Um, Hmm. the train system. You know, none of that is explained in the book. He just wanted that system to have integrity. And so he spent a lot of time working out how trains would work on the moon. Um, so that, but that's like a backend system running in the novel that you never, that is never explained in any depth within its pages.
0: That is fascinating to me for a lot of reasons. And I think, uh, without going too, too much depth here, as Pete knows, my current project certainly runs adjacent to the the dragon waiting universe that you described in certain ways that, cause it's very interested in, uh, in paganism in Europe, in medieval Europe. So I, okay. I am I'm already hooked, having not what, even read one, a word by this guy. <laughs> yeah. What
2: one of the one of the main characters is like in a Mithras cult.
0: Oh wow. Oh wow, like the, the bull,
1: the Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible yeah. dude. And and Pete, <laughs> you'll also see the sort of RPG influence in that most of his books are about a group of friends or adventurers, right? There's very seldom really um, the protagonist in the way we think about it. It's usually like a group of four or five people, like a good role-playing game. group. Yeah, so you know? like
1: this one just happens to be good at backstabbing people. And this one's an archer, like that. kind <laughs> of
2: thing. I mean, it's not quite that way where you, you know, there's some, I'm sure, you know, you read the novel and you're like, this was very clearly a role-playing session that you had that you have now translated into fiction. Right. Oh yeah. Um, it, it is not that, but it is true that there is a, the the dragon waiting concerns a group. You might even call it a party, where there is a, a wizard, a cleric, and a warrior, amongst other things. You know, they're just not called that. But so you can see the influence of those structures because um, Mike Ford was an early adopter of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, uh, you can see that that there in the way that that these characters band together.
1: So Isaac, one of the things like we, we talked earlier about how. It was impossible and ultimately not desirable to extricate you completely from this story. One of the things that's striking me as we go through this conversation is that you were the man for the job here. Like, (laughs) You obviously have a lot of passion around the same things that made Ford
2: tick. Yes, that's totally true.
1: Yes. Can we talk about that? Like, what, what what are your influences? What books do you like? What what
2: RPGs? Uh, well, you know, um, uh, it, let's see. I would say that you know. Um, my friend Helen, who's a theater critic, and we have breakfast together, you know, once a month uh, with some other friends and stuff like that. Um, absolutely knew which book she was recommending when she recommended that because she's read most of Ford's books, you know, mm-hmm. um, some of them more than once because she knew that I'm a, a, a I like genre stuff and I'm also a Shakespeare nut and you know um, a theater director and a writer and you know all those things um, and that I play Dungeons and Dragons and and whatnot. I I as a kid. I was very into science fiction and fantasy and role-playing games. I played, gosh, when I was a teenager, I played Dungeons & Dragons. I played Cyberpunk. I played Shadowrun. I played Rifts. I played Stormbringer once. Oh, uh, I remember that. I, I even played uh, Dream Park, the the role-playing system based on a Larry Niven the, series.
1: Yeah the, yeah, the Niven and Barnes, like, like uh... uh theme park out in in la that they hypothetically wanted to build that's hilarious i yeah. didn't know
2: there was a game yeah totally i played a hole a couple times human occupied landfill vampire the masquerade you know any role-playing game that came out i would try once with my friends you know mm-hmm. um and i and i also played um a lot of illuminati which is a wonderful card game that has a picture of Mike Ford in it on one of the cards. And, um, because <laughs> he was, uh, uh, you know, so beloved at Steve Jackson games. Um, uh, if any of your listeners play Illuminati, there's a card of an organization called something like evil geniuses for a better tomorrow. And on that card is Mike Ford dressed as Dr. Mike. Um, Oh wow. So, so, uh, you know, I would play anything basically, but you know, Um, as St. Paul instructed, when I became an adult, I set aside childish things and, and whatnot, but, um, uh, and I read less and less, I would say science fiction and fantasy, you know, as I, as I became an adult, um, not because it's actually childish. That was a joke, but just because I felt there were other areas of literature that I knew less about that I wanted to know more about. And, you know, as I sort of moved from theater directing to nonfiction writing, there was a whole kind of uh, uh lot all sorts of literature that I didn't know well enough that I wanted to get back into um I try to have as wide tastes as possible yeah but then Some friends of mine around the time that Community was doing its Dungeons & Dragons episodes, um, if you remember those episodes of the TV show Community, some friends of mine wanted to get back into playing, or some of them into playing for the first time, Dungeons & Dragons, and this was right around the time that the fifth edition of D&D came out, which is one of the things that fifth edition is very good at is that it's very approachable for new players. Um, And so uh, that started a Dungeons & Dragons group that I am still part of five years later. Um, and in the midst of that, I think because of that, especially, I started getting back into science fiction and fantasy. And now I have a science fiction fantasy book club with two of the members of that Dungeons and Dragons group. I, of course, got super into A Song of Ice and Fire and was one of the co-hosts of Slate's Game of Thrones podcast for a while. And, you know, so so I just, uh, it absolutely intersected with all sorts of things that I've been interested in since I was a, a child, which was exciting. Um, I a lot of times approach science fiction um, as a kind of comfort food, I would say, regardless of whether the stories themselves are comforting. The act of reading science fiction and fantasy is comforting to me because it you know brings back that time of my life. So I don't think it's a coincidence that um, I started really getting back into reading science fiction and fantasy right after Trump was elected. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, uh, yes. um, That it was like I need something that <laughs> just the act of engaging with makes me feel good. You yeah. know, and, um, uh, and so and um, uh, and and that was that was science fiction and fantasy.
0: Yeah. So I I'm gonna make us before and I I want to ask a question that might make us all feel bad, which is I That's am fine. I'm very curious here. You talk about this in the article, but. It sounds like, uh, you know, that, that he was doing okay. Mike Ford was doing okay by the standards of a writer because he was prolific and he did have an audience. But, like, he would make whatever money he made and get wiped out by his chronic yeah, totally. health needs, basically, right? Yeah. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah. I mean, if, you know, this is a story without clear villains exactly, except for the U.S. healthcare system. Yeah. That's the, that's the clear villain of this story is the U.S. healthcare system. I think, um, Mike was a very brittle, what's called a very brittle diabetic, which means that his sugar was incredibly difficult to manage. Uh, and he had juvenile diabetes. That's type one diabetes from about the age of nine. It was when he was diagnosed. Um, if I remember correctly and you know, um, he originally, I don't think believed he was going to live as long as he actually did. Um, one of the things that did improve over the course of his life is diabetes care and treatment. And the diabetes care and treatment has actually come a long way even since then, you know. Um... Uh, but type one diabetes particularly leads to all sorts of really serious health complications as you age. So Mike, um, ha- almost went blind. He needed surgery to correct the, uh, his eyes cause he had, uh, um, a- probably diabetic retinitis, which is, you know, where you slowly go blind as a result of diabetes. Um, uh, and he had a kidney transplant. And, um, but also, you know, he was just in poor health uh, a lot of the time and he didn't have money. And for most of his life, he didn't have health insurance and he survived to some extent off the largesse of his friends. And eventually a group of his friends getting him on Minnesota's public health benefit called, uh, I think it's called Minnesota care. Yeah. Um, you know, so if he had been living in Mississippi or whatever, that never would have happened and he would have died, you know? Um, so, uh, earlier, um, so so it, it it really was a difficult part of his life. He died heavily in debt. He had not made a lot of money from writing over the last few years of his life, in part because he was working on aspects right, um, and most of his work was out of print at that point. And so um, uh, it, it, that that is a really really hard part of his story. It is also true that um, at least from talking to some people who knew him that part of the exuberance and generosity with which he lived his life was because his financial and health situation was so hopeless, that he responded to that with a kind of embrace of life. He traveled as much as he could. He was sort of an expert travel hacker, you know, so he would get these vacations that he... in no way should have been able to afford. Um, uh, For example, um, uh, you know, he was extremely generous with his friends and they were uh, with, not with money because he didn't have money, but with other things and they were very generous with him. And, you know, he really did try to live his life as, as fully as he could with the time that he had. Um, And so there, there is that other side to it. That said, I think we can all agree that with a healthy, um, Healthcare system and with a society that actually cared about people who didn't make money, regardless of the reasons why they didn't make that money, he wouldn't have had to make that choice. You know, he, he would have been able to live with some amount of um, financial security and with, you know, his health being taken care of to the best extent of that time. And so that, that, that I do find really, really galling.
0: It's, yeah, it's a deeply infuriating uh, part of the piece. Um, I, it's, there's not much to be said about it other than we need to fix this damn healthcare system. Uh, Yeah, 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 exactly, um, exactly. So, Isaac, this has been a really great chat, and I get the sense we could probably go a lot longer, but I think it's probably getting to about the time where I'm going to ask you if you have further thoughts about Mike Ford, anything you want to say, and also um, things that you're working on that you want to plug or anything else like that.
2: Um, sure. I mean, <laughs> my further thoughts on Mike Ford could go on forever. Do you know what I mean? Um, wh- I do think that, uh, uh, I will just say that there are a couple things of his that are actually currently in print. Um, the Star Trek novels are in print as eBooks because he didn't own the rights to them. They were work for hire. Um, uh, and, um, Uh, If you like Star Trek, if you have any affinity for that world, they are both really great. How Much for Just the Planet is like a Terry Pratchett writes a Gilbert and Sullivan musical about (laughs) Star Trek. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah, it is incredibly silly. You have to have a high tolerance for dorky silliness. But if you do, you'll love it. That is a novel about a planet that wards off the Federation of the Klingons from colonizing it through wacky antics. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And then there's the final reflection is really actually, as uh, Neil Gaiman said to me, you know, it's one of the finest first contact novels ever written. Um, It just happens to take place in the Star Trek universe. Um, Many of his poems are online and are quite wonderful. His final novel, The Last Hot Time, is technically still in print. Um, uh, technically, meaning you're never going to find it in a store. You can order it, um, and, and they'll send you one. Um, it is not the best place to start with him. It's also it's a good book. It's just it's it's like a Boardwalk Empire with elves. Um, um, <laughs> it's not the necessarily the best place to start with him, but it's also very good. Um, so I'm just saying, there's stuff out there you can start digging into his stuff now. Um, you know, his two role-playing game handbooks that he's most famous for: GURPS Time Travel and the Yellow. Yellow clearance, black box blues, which is a paranoia supplement, um, are both quite great. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff out there about him that you can find. I will send y'all some links to a couple of fan chats and interviews he did because there's a lot of interesting stuff about him in his own words there. Fantastic. Um, uh, but yes, September dragon waiting comes back into print. Um, uh, I, I, anyone wants to talk about it with me, I'm happy to do so. Um, Oh, I think uh, we might yeah. be
0: interested in doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> oh yeah. 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 But also, you
2: know, you can find me on Twitter if you want to, if anyone listening to this wants to talk to me, I'm pretty available. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash parabasis. That's P A R A B A S I S. Um, and, uh, I, you know, my book, The World Only Spins Forward, is coming out in paperback in January from Bloomsbury. Um, and the only other thing I really have to plug is the limited series podcast I did for Slate, which is about taking six of Shakespeare's plays and looking at how they may have been responding to the politics of his era as a way of looking at the politics of our own. Um, and that's called *Lend me Your Ears, and you can find that at slate.com Shakespeare.
1: Oh, that is my jam. I, I did half an episode recently talking about what it was like being down in the stalls at the globe. So Oh that, great. That, great. That's exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's only six episodes. They're each, you know, 35 minutes long. Um, and we talk about Julius Caesar, uh, Richard the Second, Othello, uh, Measure for Measure, Coriolanus. Uh yeah, it's it's good. It's good.
0: Well, Isaac. I want to thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I think we're also probably going to bother you when uh, Dragon Waiting comes back out. Sure.
2: <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm always happy to talk about Mike Ford or books or anything. This has been a great pleasure, and I'm a fan of this podcast, so it's, it's, it's really um, a, a treat to be able to come on it as a guest.
0: Thanks, man. The pleasure is all ours. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, everybody.